The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Isaiah chapter 9, very familiar words in prophecy about Christ and his errand at Christmas, words that you will recognize, at least parts of it. I tried to lay a background for what these words came from, what was happening in the history of God's people at the time. And today I want to just go a little further with application of these words. I'm going to Read the last verse of Isaiah 8, verse 22, because it pretty much encapsulates the situation of the times, the darkness, the political struggles, the paranoia of stronger nations trying to come in and take over. And then I'll go forward into the beginning of chapter 9. Listen to God's own word, Isaiah 8:22, And they will look to the earth, But behold, only distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. That was the situation politically then. Now we read, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the later time, he has made glorious the way of the sea the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. And the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. Let me go down to verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the increase of His government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. For the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is God's own word. I'm pretty sure that if I ask any American voter today a question like this, do you think we should have more big government and expanded federal and state programs that make even more regulations and exercise greater and and more detailed control over our daily lives? I think I know the answer. There may be one or two in this gathering today who would say, yay, more government. I can't get enough of it. But I think most of you would say, no, we've got too much government already. And what we've got doesn't do the job very well. People tend to regard, as you know, big government as an evil. 
And it's amazing then in the light of Isaiah chapter 9 that we are told God has a, a goal of increasing a certain kind of government over us as a blessing to bring something wonderful with a very good end in view. It is, of course, the government of Jesus Christ, the rule of Christ, whose authority over us needs to and must extend more and more over every aspect of a believer's life. Last week, I sought to set forth a historical background here for these Christmas words we know as prophecy in Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. I backed up all the way into the end of chapter 7, where that wonderful prophecy is given, 7, 14, that a virgin will conceive and bear a son, and his name will be Emmanuel. And then in 8, I sketched quickly for you the way in which a wicked king was over Jerusalem at the time, a man named Ahaz, who refused to trust God, refused the prophet's invitation to listen for God and ask a sign from God. And so it said here that he would be subject to the voices of his own advisors and that wonderful description in 819 of mediums and, and sorcerers who, it says, will chirp and mutter. That's the best any advisor could do because he wouldn't hear what God had to say. But we come to the saying of Isaiah that a prophecy that was spoken of in 9-2 as if it was already accomplished in the past tense, that God would bring forth one who would be a great light, a great leader for his people. And he would do something amazing. And this fourfold set of titles is given to Christ that I did not get to last time that I'll say something about today, that, that he's a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, He's everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. I want to talk about these in light of what Isaiah says here, that we need to look for and welcome and bow before the increasing government of our Lord Christ, whom God has sent into our midst in times today that are exactly like those times when godless leaders won't pay attention to the voice of the Lord and what He says. When enemies are threatening us from outside our border and within, when we're fearful, when the prospect of the future is nothing but gloom and blackness, the times haven't changed very much. And God still has this prophecy of what Christ can be to us. First of all here, Jesus came to be, in Isaiah's description, a wonder of a counselor. Now, I know that many of you can hear the song in your mind that's going to be sung at the end of the service as written by Mr. Handel, and I would not affirm that I'm in any way a music critic that I can attack him, nor the fact that the King James Bible actually states it wrong by both of them saying, wonderful, pause, 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 counselor. The Hebrew language says the one who's coming is a wonderful counselor a wonder of a counselor, a counselor with great wisdom, great intuitive understanding. The words are linked together in the Hebrew language. And, you know, this is the age of counseling. I've seen over the decades that I've been in the ministry how counseling has grown and literally mushroomed as 
something that people want to study and offer as a ministry, and of course it's, it's very valuable, although you need to shop with care as in anything else. There are counselors out there to be avoided, as well as good counselors you should look to. But people are under a lot of stress today. People are confused about values and relationships, and they find their thinking is skewed in all kinds of wrong directions, and sometimes their behavior has gone so far out of normal paths of either objective morality or helpfulness in relating to one another that they don't even understand how messed up they are. And there are a lot of people looking for a counselor out there today. Well, we're happy to have a ministry here of counseling. We all do that as pastors. We have Dr. John Light and Dr. Joan Stratton, both of whom are highly qualified biblical counselors, as good as any I know of, humanly speaking. But I would not, in praising them, offer you for a minute the fact that they stand beside the wonderful counselor that is predicted for us in Jesus Christ. You know, Colossians chapter 2 says of Christ that in Him are hidden all the treasures of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. The mind of Christ is the mind of God. And he literally understands things as God understands things. When a counselor approaches you, you come with a problem, you might spend a session or two or more just describing your situation, what seems to be wrong in your life, what's your background, your family history, the the skirmishes you're involved in in your work or your family or whatever. In in other words, the counselor has to, to gather a case history just to begin to understand you and enter into your situations. Well, Romans 11.34 asks the rhetorical question, who has ever been God's counselor? And if Christ has come in our midst as a great counselor today, he doesn't need many sessions with us to gather background history and understand who and what we are. He intuitively and exactly understands your condition because in him are hidden all the treasures of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Just look at Jesus in the four Gospels as a counselor. All kinds of people approached him, different people, different stations in life, men and women, some torn by grief where a child had just died, a demon-possessed man who was just out of his senses and behaving in crazy ways, Zacchaeus coming as a rich man who wanted to make some things right again. Uh, all these different situations, the woman at the well whose life was so fragmented, Jesus approached every one of them exactly right, different but right in every case because he was the wonderful counselor. And I've done enough counseling to know that it's the Word of God, the Word of Christ that ministers in people's lives. Many times you sit down with somebody and you try to get at the root of the problem and they'll tell you what they think, we'll call it the presenting problem, what they think is wrong, what motivated them to come to you. But if you would start talking, you begin to understand that they know more about the wisdom of God and about Christ as a wonderful counselor and the Word of God and what it says to them than they're ready to admit that they're obeying. And many times they would say, you would say, well, what about this in the Scripture that speaks to your sin? Oh, I know that, but but then they pass right beyond it as if, well, that wasn't really written for me. That was for other people. No, God has given His mind to us in His Word. 
The mind of Christ is here in, in our daily and habitually weekly intake of Holy Scripture gives us the mind of Christ. The wonderful counselor works every Sunday morning in this room and other areas as you attend teaching of the Scripture or in a small group as you sit down with friends and explore the Scripture together. The mind of Christ and His wonderful counsel is there being absorbed so that you don't have to have a life that is constantly jerking you hard to the left or hard to the right and say, well, you're going wrong. Turn this way. You know, there's a scripture that says, don't be like the horse or mule who has to be yanked by a bridle around, but rather be wise in the Lord and be responsive to his touch, the touch of a wonderful counselor. Well, secondly, and I'll be briefer with these other points, but Jesus is a light in a dark world because it says here he's the mighty God. We don't have to spend too much time on this despite its great importance. It's saying that this one who's going to come as a great ruler into Galilee and into these regions where there had been all this warfare and strife is God himself. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was the radiance of the glory of God, the Scriptures tell us. And the phrase here for mighty God is El Givor, the omnipotent one. The God who can accomplish whatever he purposes to do. And this is telling us then that this man who comes is not only going to be a wise counselor, but he was going to have the power to see things done that he commands to be done. Jesus once said, all power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Nothing can withstand him. If he gives a command or makes a promise his power will see it through. Philippians 4 has Paul tell us, I, as a disciple, can do all things through him who strengthens me. Jesus Christ, who comes as the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy here, is the powerful God. Thirdly here, it's said that he's the everlasting Father. Some people think this is confusing. Well, wait a minute. Aren't we talking about Jesus the Son How can he be God the Father? It's not really saying that. We think the best way to understand this phrase, and commentators do differ over this, but we think it's saying that he's the father of everlasting life. He's the the author of eternity. He's the one who brings eternity into being and controls its future. He gives unending life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He's the father of everlasting realms and everlasting destinies. And he isn't just elected to office for four years or eight years, and then who will we have next? He is in an everlasting rule over all things. And the fourth title given here to him is this promise, the familiar one, that he's the prince of peace. And it goes right on to say, and of the increase of his government— and of peace there will be no end. And he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom to establish and uphold it with justice and righteousness from that time and forever. Prince of peace, increasing government. A lot of people mock Christmas in this regard and say, oh, really? Prince of peace? Where's the peace? We certainly didn't seem to have peace recently in San Bernardino. 
or a lot of other places on this earth. Where's the peace, people say. They think it means somehow that human war is going to cease and people are all going to feel better about one another and not be violent anymore or not be disruptive in their families or rupture their relationships. But that's not the kind of peace it's talking about. You may have read, if you have any kind of historical mindset, about a unique Christmas Eve and Christmas Day 102 years ago. In 1914, at the beginning of what we called World War I, a war whose horrors are are just beyond imagining. There was those trenches, those lines, they were really just mud holes, basically, in a line in France where the Germans came in and stopped and dug in, and the French and the English and the Americans went so far, and they dug in. And sometimes within 50 to 100 yards of each other, there were these troops in holes in the ground and mud and water, slugging it out, throwing artillery shells and gas and bullets at each other. Well, it's told in an amazing way that along whole sections of that line in World War I, on that Christmas Eve, 1914, somebody, whether they called out the word truce or what they did exactly, somehow on Christmas Eve in different sections of the line, at least, not everywhere, men got the idea, it's Christmas. Let's stop shooting. And then somebody got brave enough to stick their head up and actually come out of the trench. And then on the other side, somebody else came out and more came out. And they walked into the middle. And men met and exchanged food packages and cigarettes and talked. And the Germans started to sing Christmas carols. And somebody had a soccer ball. Can you picture it? Men who were throwing instant death at each other 24 hours ago were at peace. But for how long? I tell you, when Christmas Day was gone, they were back in their trenches, and the bullets started flying again. Some people think that's what Jesus did at Christmas. He brought a little temporary respite, uh, just cease fire for a while, But we say no. He brought real peace that goes deep inside people and begins by forging peace between man and God. God actually sent his son into the midst of the violence. He knew that he would be crucified. He knew that Herod would pursue him when he was just a baby with swords and thinking he could kill Jesus. He had no problem wiping out all the babies of a village. He knew that Jesus would be right in the firing line of humanity the whole time. In Psalm 2, it was predicted a long time ago that humankind would say about God's Son who would come, we will not have this man to rule over us. Let me tell you, they're still saying that today. Those who do not recognize Christ as being sent from God do not recognize that He reconciled us to God. He paid our penalty for sin. He made it possible for us to be called sons and daughters of God, to be accepted and forgiven by God and promised eternal life. And they're still angry at the whole idea of Jesus and that He might put us at peace with God and eventually at peace with one another. You know, I've watched some of the presidential campaign debates recently, as I'm sure many of you have. And I was watching this circus going on, reviewing in my mind who in the world I could possibly vote for out of these folks. And you know I have to tread carefully on that subject, so I will. 
But I concluded that there were not of the lineup on the stage of many, more than about two, that I could see myself voting for as a president. But then I was thinking, well, this is such an important thing. Think how important this is. One of these people we hope could be the leader of the free world. But then I started thinking in another vein and thinking to myself, you know, I wonder if we really make presidents to be more important than they actually are. How much of historic importance do they really determine? You know, they come in and I'm going to do this and I'm going to have this program. I'm going to do this and miracles will be wrought. And they end up reacting to the circumstances of their term and and go out again, and not a whole lot is that different. I I counted it up. I've lived under 12 presidents. 12, starting with Harry Truman. I don't remember Harry very well, but I was a toddler when Harry was around. And I stop and think to myself, all right, go down the list. (laughs) Which of those 12 have really done anything that deeply impacted and transformed my life and my future? Now, I'm not... I'm not debunking our our political system or telling you not to vote or telling you presidents are totally unimportant, but I'm just telling you, I couldn't come up with any of those men who've done anything life-transforming for me. Among them, we had a couple real statesmen, I think. We had a couple real scoundrels, and we had a lot of mediocrity, and you figure out who's who. That's for you to decide. But as I thought about the importance of a president, I realize it's just a little blip in God's providence in the long history of the ages over which Jesus Christ reigns and is not only a governor and a leader in word, but in deed, because what he did actually changes people. It transforms us. It makes us right with God. It promises us eternal life. He has made me on friendly terms with my God to be his son. He's changed everything and made me a citizen of the eternal realm, his kingdom. Now, Christ is declared to be, therefore, the King of kings and Lord of lords, which means he is a total, absolute, unrivaled ruler. Now, if you're talking about this in merely political and historical terms, that could be trouble. If you learn nothing else about political science, you learned in the lesson of history is that whenever you have a totalitarian, if you can get that word out, totalitarian leader, you've got trouble because you've got a human being with absolute power who's always going to abuse it. Just try out the the ones who've done that, Hitler, Stalin, the Kim family in North Korea. Is there a totalitarian leader with absolute power who has not absolutely been corrupted by it and abused those under his leadership? Jesus Christ is the only exception, the only total absolute ruler who rules by benevolence and mercy and grace and goodness for the well-being of his people. There was a strange debate that went on within evangelical theology. Pastors got involved, scholars got involved about 20 or 20 plus years ago, maybe 22 years ago, right around 1990, 92 in that era. There was something going on called the lordship controversy. I thought it was a most strange controversy. I, 
I didn't understand the passion that got spent on it. But the question was basically this. Can a person accept Jesus as his Savior but refuse to have him as Lord, ruler of his life? And to my amazement, there was a whole group of people that would say, yes, of course. You can say, Jesus, I believe you saved me at the cross. I put my trust in you. I want eternal life. I want you to be my Savior. But out of the other side of their mouth or silently, they said, but I don't intend to bow to your lordship. Can you have Jesus as your Savior and not as your Lord? To me, I didn't understand the debate. The Bible's answer is no. Absolutely not. Romans chapter 10. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. Lord and Savior are one. And God calls us to bow before the Lordship of Christ. To acknowledge him as king. In the nitty-gritty, that means in day-to-day behavior, examining what you're doing, what you're saying, how you're conducting your relationships and your business and your marriage, and saying, God, am I living here as a rebellious independent, or am I actually willing to bow to you and listen to your word and submit myself to wisdom and authority that is greater than my own? And you have to do that basically on a daily basis. You don't tell me once when I was eight years old I accepted Jesus as my Savior. It's all taken care of. No. You bow to him as Lord, King of kings, and Lord of lords, and you consciously do that every single day. And really, if you're not doing that, in some way or other, you are living a life in rebellion against his lordship. We pray the Lord's Prayer in most services, your kingdom come. What do you think we're asking for? Your government. Lord, we want your government. We want to bow and submit. We want you to be in control. Are you really praying that when you pray the Lord's Prayer? Or are you saying, oh, you know, it's Sunday. These are all these great truths we confess on Sunday. But forgive me, Lord, on Monday I'll be living life my way. Thank you very much. Today, you can submit a confused and fearful mind that you may have and a chaotic life full of disobedience and fractured problems. You could submit these things to the wonderful counselor. You can submit your weakness to the mighty God who can accomplish in you what he commands. He doesn't command things and then leave you to figure out how to do it. He gives the ability for you to do it. You can let the Lord of eternity show you that he will give you the one thing that really lasts, eternal life. And you can let the Prince of Peace reconcile every conflict you ever had with God, and then you'll become one of his peacemakers, out there reconciling in little ways the conflicts with others in lives that you touch. Once you call Jesus your Lord and bow consciously to him, you will discover that it can be true for you, that of the increase of his government in you and of true peace in you, there will be no end. Glory to God in the highest. 
Father, we seek the government of Jesus, King Jesus, the one who in the final day will be recognized even by those who hate him now, even by those who rebel at him now, whether quietly or vocally. I pray, O oh God, that you wear down submissive hearts that are not submissive now, that they might be submissive to bow before this king and receive his wonderful blessings that your zeal designs to pursue and accomplish. We praise you in the name of the king, even Jesus Christ. Amen.